Luke chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 14. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided to you, this can be found on page 868 and 869. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 54 for the sermon today, but to begin with, I want to just read one verse from this passage, and that's verse 23. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the nub of this whole passage. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. These words gather and scatter, I think, are very significant words. And they're especially significant when we read them in the context of the Old Testament. One of the main images of salvation that the Lord used in the Old Testament during the the days of the prophets was that the Lord would gather his people as they had been scattered in exile throughout all the nations. He would gather them and and perform a new kind of exodus. You know, in in the exodus story, we, we know that the, the sea was turned into a pathway for God's people to walk upon. That God created a kind of a highway in the desert where his people could walk through a place where they, they shouldn't have been able to walk. And that this would mean their deliverance from the reign of sin and death as represented by Pharaoh. Well, in the prophets, God promises to do that same thing again. He's going to, to gather his people and create a, a highway in the desert. So, Isaiah 11 verse 12 says that he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble all the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God's going to gather them. They're going to be gathered to him in his great saving act. He's going to make the the mountains smooth. He's going to provide them water along the way. And so that his redeemed can walk and stream and gather together back to his holy mountain and be gathered there. There they will see the glory of God as they gather to God. So gathering is not not just kind of a nice word Jesus picked here. It's It's a... emblematic of all of the saving work that God is doing, and God is doing it through him. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one who gathers God's people. He's come to gather, and he's telling these Pharisees and leaders that he's speaking to in chapter 11, if you don't gather to me, you're going to scatter. The image of scattering is also an image that's loaded with meaning. It's an image of judgment. Think about what the Lord did at the Tower of Babel. He scattered the people who were gathered there in pride. Isaiah 24, if you turn there in your Bible, you don't have to, but you'll see the heading is the Lord's judgment of the earth. And this is how it begins. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Those who are against Jesus, even those who belonged to the congregation of Israel, they they belong to the gathering of Israel, they're going to be scattered if they continue in their rebellion. If they don't 
come to Jesus. Jesus is providing some much-needed clarity to these muddled unbelievers. He's trying to help them see, here is the crucial question. Are you with me? Are you gathering to me? You could put the question this other way. Which path are you on? Are you on this this highway, this gracious highway that God's made in the wilderness? Or are you scattered? Again, the the passage, the the contrast couldn't be greater. The the Lord's highway is when, you know, the mountains are brought low. You know, you don't want to have to travel over mountains if you're walking, right? It's, It's hard work going uphill. It's cold up there. Right? There are all kinds of dangers can befall you in the mountains. The Lord's promising, I'm going to smooth out the mountains. Right? It's just going to be gentle slopes and flowing streams. But notice what he said was going to happen to those who, who don't come to him. They're going to be scattered and the, the land's going to be twisted. Imagine a, a plain that was navigable, but now it's, it's scarred by earthquakes. The land is, is full of upheavals. There's crags everywhere. There's great steep hills to climb and then pits. To walk in that land is to walk in a wasteland. You can't see anyone. Everyone's isolated and scattered, left for dead. That's the, the, the imagery. It's, it's the Shire and Mount Doom. Right? It's, it's walking in peace and fellowship where, where there's uh, every provision made and there's walking where you have nothing. Are you gathering or have you been scattered? Jesus wants his audience this morning to to know which path they're on. Have you been gathered to me? Are you walking in the smooth pastures? Or have you been scattered? Are you walking on twisted terrain? And it's so important that he clarifies this, again, because those he's speaking to, they think, they think that they've been gathered. They belong to the congregation of Israel. You know, they, they've got their own opinions about what godliness is, about how to understand and apply the law, about who's a false prophet and who's a true prophet. They think they know, but he's here to tell them, you don't know. So this morning, Jesus is going to help us to understand what it means to be those who are gathered and those who are scattered. And here's three hallmarks we're going to look at of those who are scattered. It's those who judge Christ. Those who judge Christ. Second, those who distort God's word. Those who distort God's word will be scattered. And finally, those who hinder others from coming to Christ. Those who hinder others. We'll look at all three categories in our passage this morning. And to begin, we're going to read verses 14 through 32 of this chapter, and then we'll read the rest as we go. So let's read together. Chapter 11, verse 14 of Luke begins on page 869. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out of the mute man, gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. 
And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is God's word. There are a lot of puzzling sayings in these passages, aren't there? Uh, there's, There's some clear confrontation that's happening. And this is something that's increasing as Jesus journeys towards Jerusalem. Um, there's some demonology here that is kind of foreign to us as modern people. We don't think much about demons, but clearly this was a, a live issue for those in the first century. And that exorcisms were a common part of Jewish religious life uh, even before Jesus came. So I don't know if you noticed there, Jesus refers to their sons, the people who he's speaking with. They also cast out demons. And Jesus is asking them, by whose power do your sons cast out demons? He even seems to be critiquing his way of casting out demons versus their way. Because he says, when, when your sons cast out demons, the demons leave for a little while and then they come back. Right? That they don't have anything to replace the demons with and the person is worse off at the end than before. What's clear is that spiritual life and death hang in the balance. Right? That Jesus is concerned that people are left in worse shape than they started by the ministry of those who accuse him. Right? They, these folks are accusing him of working the works of Satan. And Jesus fires back and says, whose side are you really on? For the, these last two weeks, we've been looking at this section of Luke that begins with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from Galilee. And as he's been going, he's been teaching his followers what it means to, to know Jesus and follow him. What it means to know his mercy and to be merciful. How God's goodness should drive us to pray. But in this week's passage, we do see this other theme emerging, this theme of opposition, which is a big part of this section of Luke as well. Because Jesus, after all, is going to Jerusalem to die, to be opposed and handed over. And so as, as he goes here, this intensification of opposition is part of what's happening. As Jesus heals, he's being accused 
And not, not just accused of being a bad teacher, but accused of being in league with Satan. And that's how these people respond. We see at first that there are some here who marvel that Jesus casts out this demon, this demon which had caused muteness. But then there are these others who said, no, you're working the works of Satan. You're only doing this because you're using the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, no matter what your spiritual condition, you'd think that seeing a mute man speak would be marvelous, right? That if we were to see that, we would recognize, well, something, something good is going on here. Uh, and this should have been more so, because again, one of the prophecies about the coming new exodus would be that the mute would sing for joy, right? So Jesus, by healing this mute man, is continuing to be on theme, right? He's already announced himself as the one who frees the captives, the one who makes the blind to see, and now he's just continuing on, showing them that God is here with you. God is doing the things that he promised he would do when he showed up. And so what should have been happening is that faithful Jews who'd read Isaiah should have been saying, like Simeon said, Lord, now my eyes have seen your salvation. You've clearly shown up here keeping all of your promises. That should have been the response. If you were a faithful Bible reader, that should have been your response. <clears throat> but clearly there are some who don't marvel. They accuse him in verse 15 of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And yet there are these others that said to test him, kept seeking a sign. These are those I was talking about when I said they judged Jesus. This is kind of a heading for the next few passages. Some were saying he's working for Satan. And others were saying, I need to see something else from God before I follow him. And Jesus' first response, especially to this first group, these ones who called, who said he was a blasphemer, <coughs> or that they, they were committing that blasphemy by accusing him of working for Satan, his first response is really to, to point out the stupidity of their accusations. If Satan is casting out demons, that would mean Satan is making war against himself. It's kind of Jesus' way of saying, is this the best explanation you can come up with for what you're seeing here? Are you so grasping at straws that this is what you come up with? And this is something that people often do. We, we come up with snap judgments about someone, and then we come up with the rationale later, right? I think that's kind of what's going on here. They, they already hate Jesus. Let's just throw this demon accusation at the wall and see if that sticks to him. They clearly don't want to accept Jesus, and so they make up a reason why. But Jesus challenges them on this. He says in verse 20, if, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, that phrase, finger of God, is kind of unusual, but the challenge is clear. Essentially saying, are, are you really going to stick with this idea that I'm doing the work of Satan? Or are you going to face the truth? The kingdom of God has come. And you're just opposing God. And this leads Jesus into this mini parable about a strong man who's guarding his home. As, as long as he's got all his strength, he looks like his possessions are, are protected. But then if someone stronger shows up, well, the game is over. He's plundered. And Jesus is the, is the embodiment of this stronger man. 
The stronger ones come and, and Satan has been dismantled, has been disarmed. The kingdom of God has come. The stronger one is here. And he's not come doing the works of Satan. He's come tackling Satan. He's come disarming Satan. He's coming exposing Satan. He's come and whoever is not with him is against him. Whoever is not gathering to him scatters. He's asking this crowd, which are you? Are you going to stick with this line that I'm working for Beelzebul? Or are you going to recognize that the kingdom of God has come? And everything depends on how you respond to Jesus. Either you receive him as God's appointed savior or you reject him. Again, they thought they were on God's side in rejecting Jesus. But Jesus here puts the point to them. Has the kingdom of God come or not? Isn't this exactly what God said would happen when the kingdom of God came? That the mute would speak. We should each ask, am I trusting God as he's revealed himself in scriptures? Or am I trusting in a God of my own imagination? Because that's what these people were doing. They had, they had imagined what it would be like when God came. That it would be like a, a, a great king leading an army, maybe. Or just solving all the Jews' problems. They had imagined that. And they weren't willing to submit to God as he'd actually revealed himself. <coughs> you know, we can do this too, right? We, can, we might imagine that Jesus is not judgmental. You know, we like to think of Jesus as always gentle, never having a sharp word. But this passage proves that wrong, doesn't it? We might even be tempted to say if we had that view of Jesus and, and we saw a Christian giving some kind of a, a sharp rebuke, well, you're doing the devil's work by talking that way. It's ungodly to act that way. But you see, the love of Jesus in Scripture, Scripture's Jesus loves us enough to rebuke us. He loved these people who were accusing him of being in league with Satan. He loved them so much that he confronted them in their error and he exposed the stupidity of their arguments, of their accusations. Jesus is a God who rebukes us. He's still rebuking us today, correcting us, calling us to repentance. And so he forces a question on any of us who would judge Jesus. Are you with me or against me? Are you allowing scripture to form your image of me? Or are you just living by what you imagine me to be like? Are you with Jesus? Those who will be scattered are those who, who judge Jesus, who call him a worker of Satan. But there's this other group that I mentioned earlier of those who judge Jesus, who, who witnessed the mute man being healed, and they are still wanting to test Jesus. They're looking for a sign. In other words, all that Jesus had done up to this point was not enough for them. Now, let's just think about this. I mean, I, I don't know what all was known about Jesus, but he'd assembled a pretty important track record by this point. You know, he, he'd been born 
in a miraculous way. And then I think the news of his virgin birth was, was well known. He had, he had had this miraculous um, anointing by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Great crowds were there when that happened. He's repeatedly preached in a way that people recognize he had authority as he preached from the word. He's done numerous healings and exorcisms. He's been transfigured on this mountain. I, again, I don't know how public that was, but it's not hard to imagine that John and James and Peter told other people, here's what we saw on the mountain. All of these things have been done, many of them very publicly. And these are yet saying, we still need to see something more. All these things aren't enough to prove that you are who you say you are. Where we might not have been tempted to be like that first crowd that accused Jesus of being in league with the devil, I think we can be more sympathetic to sign-seeking. I mean, aren't we a people who like to be well-informed? We like to do our due diligence. I mean, if if you're just going to buy a new frying pan, don't you go read some reviews before you buy it, right? We can go today and find, you know, the YouTubers who've got like all 15 new frying pans and he's going to tell you about which one is the best and how long the nonstick coating lasts. We always like a, a bit more information. It can seem like it's justifiable, especially if we're, we're making a major commitment. Like we should be, we should do our due diligence, right? We should have all the information. But Jesus calls this impulse, not, 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 researching frying pans, but seeking a sign, he calls it evil. This generation is an evil generation, verse 29. It seeks for a sign. It's judging Jesus. It's rejecting him and saying, it's, it's not enough who you've revealed yourself to be so far. Jesus says that there's only one sign that's going to be given to them. It's the sign of Jonah. <coughs> Jonah was this Old Testament prophet, right? He's famous for running from God, being swallowed by the fish and then vomited up. And if we only know about the fish story, we might forget about Jonah's post-vomit success. After he spat out on the shore, he goes to the city of Nineveh and he preaches there. And even though he's upset about it, he's a really successful preacher, right? The Ninevites hear and they repent. From the least to the greatest, they, they put on sackcloth and ashes and they repent. And God, at least temporarily, averts the disaster that he had planned for that city because of Jonah's preaching. It's not clear whether the sign of Jonah is just the preaching or maybe it includes his kind of quasi death and resurrection in the belly of the fish. And it could mean both. And certainly Jesus here is a prophet like Jonah, pronouncing these woes upon his own people. But we also know that he'll die and rise again, and that will be his own kind of sign to these people that he's preaching to. Jesus says that at the last day, these men of Nineveh who heard Jonah and repented, they're going to be kind of like standing off to the side as a chorus, telling Jesus' generation, if we had heard what you heard, well, we, you know, we would have repented all the more. Jesus is arguing from lesser to greater. Jonah was a lesser prophet. I'm the greater prophet. Something greater than Jonah is here. And he says the same thing about this queen of the south or, or the queen of Sheba. 
She was drawn to Solomon because she'd heard about what the Lord was, had done through him. And she comes from a far, far away, bearing gifts to hear about the Lord through Solomon. Jesus is saying, look, if these people in the past, these, these pagans who they had no knowledge of God, if they repented at preaching, what excuse do you have? What excuse will you have at the last day because of what you heard? Jesus prophesies that these who hear and reject him, they will be condemned. They'll be condemned by their sin, by their rejection of him. He wants them to imagine that last day. He wants to imagine these, these pagans are there saying, you, you saw God himself in the flesh healing a mute man and you didn't repent? What were you waiting for? Jesus would ask us the same question. Are we waiting for some sign in heaven for God to, to prove himself to us before we believe in Jesus? Maybe we think we're justified. We, we weren't there to see the, the mute man healed, right? If we had just seen something like that, maybe we'd have more faith. We want to see Jesus do something supernatural in our lives to heal that sick friend. Well, what, what would Jesus say to that impulse? I think we can see what he would say in that strange encounter he has with this woman in verse 27. This woman shouts out in the crowd. She shouts out a blessing on Jesus' mother. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. It seems to be better than accusing Jesus of working for Satan, right? So we're making some progress. It's positive. But Jesus does not give a hearty amen, sister, to this lady, right? He replies with his own blessing. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is what Jesus would say to us if we're seeking a sign. He said, we don't need a sign from heaven. We have the word of God. The word of God tells us of, of heaven's signs in Christ. The blessing doesn't come from, from seeing or experiencing miracles. It comes to those who hear, who hear the word of God and keep it, who hear and believe the good news about Christ, that he came and died and rose again for sinners. Christ is God's revelation of himself, of his salvation to all people. And we know Christ through God's word, through the scriptures. To ask for some other sign, some other revelation, is to say that Jesus, as he's been revealed, is not enough. You know, at the end of the day, that's not very different from the blasphemers who were saying Jesus was a worker of Satan. Because to say that Jesus is not enough is to say that he is not God in the flesh. He's not the Savior. It's to say that the gospel is lacking. So the question is, have you heard the word of God? Have you heard the word that proclaims Jesus as the, the deliverer, the son of God who's come to save? Are you keeping it? Are you judging Christ or believing him? 
those who judge Christ say, Jesus, you're not enough. Jesus, you shouldn't be acting like that. Those are the ones who will be scattered. But those who believe, they are gathered to him. They are gathered to God through Christ. The next group of people who are scattered are those who distort God's word. Jesus moves on to address them beginning in verse 33. <clears throat> you might think, say, we might be able to see kind of a movement in this passage. So we start off with the, the blasphemers, those who were most overtly accusing Christ. And it kind of moves to those who are rejecting him with more subtlety. So from blasphemers, we go to these sign seekers But then we move to the Pharisees and the the lawyers, the scribes, teachers of the law. But Jesus' words to them are very similar to his words to these others. He says that the Pharisees' ways also lead to death. These these exorcists in the the Jewish world, they, they exorcised demons, but then they left people susceptible to greater possession. The people who they ministered to ended up worse off. More enslaved to demons than when they started. He says the Pharisees are like unmarked graves. People who follow the Pharisees' way stumble into contact with death, he's saying. The Pharisees and the lawyers, they lead people away from the kingdom and not to it. The, The lawyers and scribes, he says, take away the keys of knowledge and you hinder people from entering. These are those who distort the word of God. Jesus wants them to see that distorting the word of God leads to spiritual death. Let's begin reading in verse 33. For now we'll read just down through verse 41. Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside you, in, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This first paragraph about the light is a challenging one, but there are a couple of things that I think we can see clearly. First is what light is for and what to do with the lamp, right? Light is for helping us to see, right? We don't hide our lamps. And we don't turn on a light and then throw a blanket over it. Like, light is to help you see. Light may be good, but our eyes can be bad. So we have this metaphor of, a, of an eye like a lamp for the soul, allowing light in. But we can fill our eyes with the wrong things. We may have eyes like these who were looking for a sign, right? Their, their eyesight was distorted by wanting to see something more. And it made them blind to Christ. And so Jesus gives a warning. Be careful, 
lest the light in you be darkness. The word picture here is about exposing what's within. The light in you being darkness. Do you think you're full of light and truth, he's asking? You may be deceived. The light in you may be darkness. The next paragraph, verses 37 through 41, where Jesus goes to eat at this Pharisee's house, also has this idea of what's inside being most important. When Jesus sat down to dinner without washing his hands, the Pharisees uh, are, are scandalized. But Jesus says, now you Pharisees are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. And he talks about the inside being just as important. He calls them to give his alms those things that are within. Again, this focuses on an external, internal dynamic. The Pharisees are obsessed with what people can see. The ceremonies of religion, washings, separation from the unclean, outward conformity to the law. Whether overtly or implicitly, the way they live proclaims that you can be wholly devoted to God just by external works. It doesn't matter where your heart is. As long as you're doing the right things, that's all that matters. That's what these Pharisees are saying. Again, this is not as overtly anti-God as the blasphemers we met earlier, because there seems to be some desire to obey God. But the Pharisees' own scripture condemns this approach. He listened to Psalm 24, 3. It begins with a question. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Do you know the answer to the question? It starts like this, verse 4. He who has clean hands. Good job, Pharisees. You got that one right. But there's more. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. But the clean hands are supposed to be a reflection of a pure heart. The truth-telling lips are supposed to reflect a soul that loves the truth. And this is not an obscure or isolated passage. They would have to go hunting through the genealogies of Chronicles to find. No, this was front and center in their, their worship books, right? The Pharisees knew better than their obsession with externals. But they denied their need for pure hearts. They said that externals are all that matters. Jesus is saying, though, to live like this is to be lost. It's the foolish way. This is the way of scattering, the way that leads to death. We know this temptation that the Pharisees have very well, don't we? The temptation to focus on externals. We have people are pretty quick studies when it comes to what it takes to appear godly. We learn the lingo. We know the answer to the Sunday school question is Jesus, right? We're experts also at avoiding the kind of vulnerability that would reveal who we truly are. And so we reduce the worship of God to outward words and actions, to things that are achievable under our own power, 
And once we make those things the measuring stick of righteousness, we can convince ourselves that we're doing pretty good. We might even think we're doing so well that we can look down on others who are less able or less interested in keeping up appearances. But if we live this way, Jesus' word for us is, You fools! And he refers us back to the God who made us. Don't you realize the one who made you didn't just make you a body that can be seen by others. He made you inside and out. And God sees into the soul. God demands the worship of the whole person. Jesus says that we are to give to God those things that are within. To love God with all of our heart. Jesus rebukes those things whose whose inner selves is full of darkness, who are full of evil and yet pretend they're full of light. (coughs) The most remarkable thing, though, is that in both of these pictures about inward darkness or inward wickedness, he offers hope. In verse 36, he says, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with, <clears throat> with its rays gives you light. There's, there's hope for brightness. In the same way, in the same vein, he says, give, give as alms those things that are within, and everything is clean for you. In other words, you're, you're Pharisees, you're on the way of death. You're, you're on your way to being scattered. But there's an off-ramp from this way. You don't have to continue on living as hypocritical fools. And the off-ramp is to remember the one who made you. That he made you inside and out. That he desires your pure-hearted worship. And to repent of the way you've distorted God's word by making it all about external things. Look to the one who made you and repent. And look to the one who's come to save you. Look at me. I'm here bringing God's kingdom. I've come to make the mute talk. I've come to open the blind eyes. I've come to free you from captivity. I've come to deal with the spiritual rot that is inside you. That you know that's there, but you've been papering over. The complete cleansing that they need comes from Christ. It's not something that we can do to ourselves. It's only something that we can receive. That we can get as we're washed by the blood of Christ. By trusting in Jesus and his death for our sin. That's how we can be clean from the inside out. That's the light that we need. Those who distort God's word will be scattered. But those who receive and hear the word of God be cleansed and gathered. The second distortion is those who neglect God's love and justice. Jesus pronounces a woe to the Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing. These Pharisees also are focused on minutiae, tithing herbs and rue, but neglecting justice and love. 
It's noteworthy that Jesus doesn't tell them that they are wrong to tithe the mint and the herbs, right? He, he tells them, um, you should do these things, love and justice, without neglecting the others. So it's, it's worth paying attention to every detail of the Christian life. Our whole lives do belong to God. We should be concerned about the big things and the little things. But to neglect love and justice, the love and justice of God, is to neglect God himself. I mean, what is God if he is not righteous and he is not love? So their distortion of God's law had led them to miss God altogether. There's some ambiguity in this phrase, the love and justice of God. Does it mean that we don't love and that we don't do justice ourselves? Or does it mean that we're not valuing God's love and God's justice? I don't think we're meant to be able to tell the two apart. To know God's love is to love. To love God's justice is to do justice. So the question is multifaceted. Do you know God's love? Do you rejoice in God's righteousness? Do you love with God's love? Do you hunger with and thirst for righteousness? In many ways, we're back to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? The lawyer who came to Jesus to test him. Right? He, he knew he was supposed to show mercy to his neighbor, but he just wanted to limit who his neighbor was. He wanted to be able to say, I can love God's righteousness and love and still be unmerciful to those people. You see, the way of death is marked by minimizing our sin. If our sin is small, we don't really need a savior. We just need a a little self-improvement, a little course correction. We don't need someone to die in our place. But the kingdom of God which Jesus brings is righteous and merciful. When Jesus comes, he doesn't come minimizing our sin. He makes atonement for it. We see God's love and justice at the cross. Anytime we're drifting away from the cross of Christ, we are neglecting the love and justice of God. When we seek to earn our way to God, we're neglecting the truth that only by God's righteousness to us in Christ are we saved. When we self-righteously condemn others, we're acting as if the love of God and the grace of God can't extend to them. If we're trying to live the Christian life without the cross, we've lost sight of God himself. We're neglecting the love and justice of God. We're on the way to being scattered, on the way to being judged by God. Now, this is a tragic loss to anyone who makes this exchange, who says, instead of the love and justice of God at the cross, I'm going to choose a different path. But we can't miss that our choices here have big implications for others, too. And that's one of Jesus' big concerns in this passage. These religious leaders are not only turning away from God themselves, but they are leading others to death. Remember, he told the Pharisees, they are like unmarked graves that other people stumble into. People who follow their teaching unwittingly stumble into 
contact with the ways of death. Look at the last part of our chapter, verses 45 through 54. He accuses these lawyers of killing the prophets by the rejection of him. They're just falling in line with that long tradition of those who hated God's prophets. At the end, he condemns them for hindering people from entering the kingdom. Listen to God's word, chapter 11, verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Jesus is bringing the full weight of his condemnation down upon these teachers. They burden others with false teachings. In all of this, in their distortion of the law, in their rejection of Jesus, They're kind of bringing to a point all the rebellion of Israel over the centuries. It's all being manifest in them. And they just prove Jesus right. After he condemns them here, what do they do? They just go and start plotting ways to kill the Son of God. The prophet who's come to them. God himself. They're laying in wait for him like thieves to see a way to find an excuse to kill him. In a way, this is the reason why Israel is condemned the way they are in, in the Gospels. They're, they're kind of being ushered out of office. They had been God's representatives, and now a new representative is on the scene. Christ himself and his church will take over the, prop, the mantle of, of proclaiming the Gospel to the ends of the earth. The, the job that Israel had is being transferred to Christ and his kingdom. And Christ pronounces these woes upon them. But again, his focus at the end is on their hindering. They're hindering others from coming. On the way they load others with burdens. So Christ wants us to see that each of us is going to have to answer before God for our own response to Jesus. That's the key question. What have we done with the grace and love that are ours in Christ? Have we responded by faith? Or have we rejected him? That's that's the most essential question of the passage. But there's another question that's also very important. And it's the question that's especially important for church people. Because we're people who say that we know God. And we're people who say we want to help others follow God. And that question is this. Are you hindering others from coming? Are you leading them into death by what you teach and the way you live your life? And Jesus wants us to see that a hypocritical life 
leads others into death. When we act as if following Jesus is all about a a life of outward conformity, then the way we live implies that you have to earn your way into God's good graces. You can't admit any fault. You have to have a scrubbed up, cleaned up life. That's the key. If we're living that way, we're leading people into death. We need to pray urgently that we would not be those who hinder anyone. In our homes, in the church, with our neighbors. We need to repent of any hypocrisy and legalism. We have to repent of any ways that our lives and our words have said, Jesus is not enough, I need something more. On the other hand, we must strive in all that we do to magnify the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And when Paul says that truth, this saying is trustworthy. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What's the next phrase? Of whom I am the foremost. Are we willing to say that? Saying Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You should believe that. Or we make it clear, I believe it, and it's my hope. So often in the church we speak of the gospel as it's it's only for other people. It's only for those really bad sinners who need to be saved. But the truth is, it's for all of us, of whom I am the foremost. And Paul says this so that everyone will know the great mercy of God. The truth is, we've all failed in these ways. We've judged God's work by our own standards. We've held Jesus at arm's length and said, give me something more. We lived hypocritical lives, put up a good front while hiding our sin. We've neglected God's love and justice. We've preached messages with our lives and our words that have confused others. So what do we do? The only thing we can do is to come back to the one who makes blind people see, mute people talk, who frees people who are captive to sin, to come to Jesus. He is the one who cleanses people of their sin. We don't have the pure hearts we need to dwell in God's holy hill, but Jesus can cleanse us. And so we come to Jesus, we get cleaned. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd give us the the discipline we need to, to sit with these corrections from Christ. To hear them, to allow them to penetrate to examine our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us. Holy Spirit, we pray you would bring conviction where we need to be convicted. And we pray that these conviction, this conviction of sin would drive us once again to Christ so that we will be like Paul, that we will extol Christ who came to save sinners and be willing to say, of whom I am the foremost. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.